0: morning I'm thankful to be able to be here today and to, to come and to teach Jim reached out in, in his absence today and asked that if I would be willing to fill in and I'm always <coughs> excuse me thankful for an opportunity to be able to, to teach um, I, as you know Sean and I have been in a move and we're in the in the midst of that and this week I've been down in Seminole um, so uh, meeting a lot of people that, I don't know, and uh, learning new ways of doing things and routes to locations, it sure is nice to come back and see faces of people that uh, have been edifying to us and that have helped us in our walk, and it's good to, uh, you know, people that will be brothers and sisters in Christ that we'll be spending eternity with. So thank you for always being such a a loving group to us. Um, Today, with the text we're going to be looking at is, uh, is looking at some intersecting stories, about providential precision and personal response within it. And I'll think in some capacity that each of us can look back on our lives and we can, we can see how God's hand has been at work at different places. I mean, can you think of, it with, just for a moment, quietly think of just divine appointments that you look back on it and you see God was at work doing something, creating something, an opportunity that you had to, uh, to be able to join Him and be aligned with Him in His work. There's a, a quote from a, a person whose name is John Flavel. He was a Puritan. He was part of the clergy, and he was a, a writer. And he said this, The providence of God is like Hebrew words. Uh, it can be read only backwards. And, and I would agree with that. I mean, Shauna and I, we, we, uh, one of our friends was joking with us, but they, they said that we're like gypsies. Every, every three years, it seems like we're moving somewhere. But that's what the Lord has for us. That's what we do. We step into it. But one thing that because of the change in, in locations and because when we move or when jobs change, but we, we can look back and we see God's hand at work within those events. And I say this at the same time, when those things occur, we also see the fact that we, had, that we ourselves were diligent in our personal responses within that providence. So we weren't bystanders. We were, we were enjoying God's provision, His protection. But the reality is, is that we were in a place of seeking His will to understand what He wanted from us so that as His will was rolling out, then we were being obedient within it and, and being obedient to the truth of Scripture. And, and not only we can see these things with not only in our own lives, but we see these examples within, uh, within the Bible. Look at the Old Testament with Joseph. And he was the youngest of 12 uh, brothers. His older brothers despised him. Some wanted him dead. And they ended up selling him uh, into slavery and went back and told their father that he had died. Well, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. God took Joseph, grew him, developed him. And in time, he actually became the equivalent of the prime minister for Egypt, for a kingdom kingdom. And God used him to not only save his brothers who despised him, but to save his family and to save a multitude of people from famine. So what was meant for evil, God meant for good. We see this with Moses when he was dealing with Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues. Right? The, the Israelites, hundreds of years later after this event with Joseph, the Israelites were enslaved and they were in Egypt, and God had appointed Moses to lead the people out. Um, we see God's providential precision as these plagues unfolded. In Exodus 7, verses 2 through 3, it says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, and he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And so there was this providential precision, but also an example of personal response. Because what happened with Pharaoh Pharaoh uh, chose to harden his resolve. Exodus 8.22 tells us that, And Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken. Um, Esther's another example of providential precision, how she was chosen to be queen, how uh, all the events of between her and, and Mordecai, and then the evil Haman with the plot, I mean, all these events unfolded with precision, but yet within all of this precision, there was personal response. Esther had to make the choice to go before King Ahasuerus. Mordecai had to make hard decisions about how he was going to be dealing with Haman and how he was going to be standing for the Lord, and he was willing to take whatever punishment came towards him. So there was personal response. And the end result is what? The end result is that we see that the Israelites were protected from genocide and that Israel, uh, and that uh, Jerusalem was rebuilt. And that the temple worship was restored. So in, in each of these examples, in our own personal examples, and these examples I just shared, we can see that there's a um, we can see that providential precision is at work, where there's a blending of events that results in God's will being executed, where his will comes to fruition. And then we can also see personal response, and that's what we'll be looking at today. How people operate within God's will, making choices within that. And that's what the story of the woman of the well is. And we'll be in John 4. Uh, I do encourage you to turn there because while there will be, uh, I will be using the screen, the text for John 4 will be whatever you're following in your scripture. I won't have any of John 4 on the, there on the screen. So I, I do encourage you to, to turn there. But let's go on ahead and go before the Lord in, in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to, um, just to open your word, to study your word, to apply your word to our lives. And to be different as a result, Father, may we do the work with fear and trembling of growing in our faith, and thank you that uh, that we're able to operate within your will and within your good pleasure of growing us. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so to give a little bit of picture of where John four is kicking off, so where does this story fall within Jesus' earthly ministry? Well, he's about a year in. He's between two miracles. Remember, he had at the uh, he did his first. Uh, miracle at the wedding feast in Galilee. He turned the water to wine, and, and, uh, and then the second miracle was, is going to be happening soon, just not yet, and that's when he heals the nobleman's son. He had just got through with a conversation with, uh, in Jerusalem with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, you know, being a religious uh, a elite a leader, he had uh, visited with him, and this is the only gospel that records this event of the woman at the well. Interestingly enough, you know, when, when, uh, with Christ during his earthly ministry, would do signs and wonders to help people understand uh, who he is as a Messiah. It's part of his emphasizing his d- distinctiveness and setting himself apart. And he b- did miracles so people would believe. But here in this story, he had to do no physical miracles. Everything he did, people believed him based upon his word. So, um, So, let's start off in the first verse, John 4, verse 1. Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So, why would Jesus leave the area? The reality is the timing wasn't right. He operated with intentional timing, and it wasn't right. Um, there's still more for the forerunner. That's John the Baptist still had more to do. And John the Baptist's own disciples noted in John uh, 3.26, they were noting that about Jesus, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. But John's re- John the Baptist's reply was, he must increase and I must decrease. So although there was a change that was beginning to occur, the timing wasn't right. It was providence. But what about Galilee? So they were leaving Jerusalem. And they were going up to Galilee. It was about a two-day, two-to-three-day journey, about 65 to 70 miles between. And I put a, uh, there's a red star where Sychar is. This is the area where the where story unfolds. And, and I kind of like to, I have to see things visually. So this is a geographic, uh, this is a map showing the just the different geographic regions. There's the coastal plain, which is along the Mediterranean Sea. And that's a smooth route that people can travel on. And then there's the hill country, which is a shorter route if you're going to go to uh, Samaria. Uh, or go to Galilee also, but it's a, it's a rugged terrain. And then the Rift Valley, you'll see that's uh, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and uh, along the Jordan River, and people, would, that's a smoother route as well, but they're both a little bit longer. So, um, you know, I told you a, a couple minutes ago about um, whenever Joseph was sold into slavery that uh, he was, that was up in, above Galilee, and so a common route, they would go down that coastal plain when people were coming from the north and traveling down into Egypt, they'd go through that coastal plain. But in this particular instance, um, the road of the patriarchs is what uh, was chosen uh, to go on. So let's pick back up in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So why do you think he chose this route? Like when you see the wording there, he had to pass through Samaria. Well, there's a divine appointment. The had to in the Greek is the word dei, D-E-I. And John often used this word when he was writing, uh, when he spoke about Jesus fulfilling the ministry that the Father had given him, fulfilling the mission that the Father had given him. He would often use this word, day, to communicate that. So that's where we get had to. So he had to pass through Samaria. A divine appointment was, was in place because Jesus was working on an agenda other than his own. He was working on an agenda that the Father had set for him. And what do we call that? The Father's will when things come to fruition. That's, that's, uh, it's, it's called predestination. There's an, there's an established purpose of the Father's will. But what are we seeing written in this text? We're seeing providence unfold. Providence is unfolding that. When we look at providence, we're looking at precision, timing, and execution of the Father's will in the earthly ministry of Jesus and in, those, in the lives of those that Jesus interacted with. So as this story unfolds, we're going to see choices that people make, personal responses that people make when they're in, within these divine appointments. And to, share the weight of, uh, and to share the weight of this and how about God's will coming to fruition, there's a text I like uh, in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. It says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done saying my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have formed it. Surely, I will do it. So we can see God's will comes to fruition. and He says that it will come to fruition. Pick back up in verse, uh, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And uh, up on the, the screen you can see Mount Gerizim, which is on your left, Mount Ebal, um, Jacob's well. Uh, and, and Shechem is, is a, was the was a city that was right in between the two. And Sychar is on the western slope of Mount Ebal. If you look between the two mountains from the, the where we are at right now looking through it then you'd be looking west to the Mediterranean Sea uh, but what events were so significant that happened here for these these the, the inhabitants of Samaria because now the Samaritan people there' only there are five books of the Old Testament that they uh, followed as their scriptural teaching it was the first it was the books that Moses wrote Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy those are the five they didn't they didn't uh, follow the rest of the Old Testament like the Jewish people did. They just stuck with the first five books. So what was so significant that happened here? Um, what, ha- what were the patriarchs that were involved? When you look at Abraham, when Abraham came to the promised land, it was between these two mountains when he entered the area that God reaffirmed the promise to him of the land that he was entering. That would be his and his descendants. If you look at Jacob, the patriarch of the Jews, his sons and grandsons had the 12 tribes uh, were named after his sons and grandsons, and Jacob's name in time was changed to Israel, and thus the 12 tribes were called Israelites. What about Joseph? Joseph is uh, said to be buried in this land. Um, the Scripture refers to that. He's buried in the land given to him by Jacob. Jacob had purchased this land, had his herds there, his cattle there, built, uh, dug a well there. And then in time, he gave it to Joseph. And whenever Joshua, another huge figure, Joshua buried Joseph there when he returned to this land. And Joshua, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Joshua, whenever he entered and uh, what he did, you can picture between the two mountains uh, when they were coming back out of the wilderness. You know, so they had the exodus that had been in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they were able to return back into the promised land. Well, uh, What they did, they put the Ark of the Covenant with the priests between the two mountains, between that pass, and six of the tribes were on Mount Gerizim when the blessings were pronounced, and six of the tribes were on Mount Ebal when the curses were pronounced, pronounced, and they would respond as the the priests would read the commands, they would would respond uh, in unison uh, to that, and that was an acknowledgement of, yes, these are the blessings and these are the curses if we follow God, if we are obedient or disobedient. So this this area was, was sacred to them. Even so much, uh, this, they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. Uh, after, uh, you know, like whenever, after the Babylonian exile, you had three waves of people returning, three waves of Israelites. Zerubbabel had the first one, then you had Ezra, and then we all know about Nehemiah uh, building the wall. Ezra was restoring worship. Well, whenever the, some of the Samaritans came down trying to involve themselves in rebuilding the temple, and not necessarily with good intent, And they were rebuffed, and and they said, no, the the exiles returning said, no, we're not going to have you join us. Well, then they returned, and they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. So uh, let's pick back up verse 6. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So sunrise is at 6 a.m. That means it was noon when he was at the well. John, uh, so the, the, now we're going to see, we're going to be entering into John, 7, but the, uh, uh, John 4, verse 7, but these two stories are simultaneously occurring as we start to unfold this next block of Scripture, what's going on with the disciples, and there's certain things occurring with the Samaritan woman as we work through the story. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So she would have had her clay pot, most likely, and as the disciples are going for food, she was coming for water in the midday. Now, if you look at this, women in general, culturally, would travel in groups to get the water, and they would do it in the cool of the day, like the morning or the evening. But here she is, by herself, she's alone, uh, in the middle of the day. And we'll get more of a picture of that in a moment. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And even... This was taboo. There's a couple things. A, a strict Jew at that time would not have eaten food handled by. Samaritans. In fact, the reality is that routes that I showed you earlier about how they took the road of the patriarchs, a strict Jew who didn't want to be uh, contaminated by the Samaritans would have gone the coastal highway or they would have gone through the Rift Valley. They wouldn't have gone straight through. They would have completely avoided Samaria and traveled around it on the longer, smoother routes and bypass Samaria, and then they would have gotten like, to Galilee or where they needed to go. But Jesus you know, had to pass through Samaria. So, um, but he sent his disciples into town to buy food. Which meant that he was breaking a taboo that he was okay eating food that had been handled by Samaritans. And there's another thing. You notice that Jesus said, uh, Give me a drink. Well, he said, Give me a drink, but he was asking you to drink from her utensils. He was willing to, to, to share with her. He, uh, taboos and traditions were irrelevant to him. He was willing to drink after her. Verse 9 Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now he's about to entice her into communication. He's going to start challenging how she sees things, uh, and he's going to draw her deeper in at this point to start to educate her on who he is. So um, I talked to you a little bit about why the Jews would avoid the Samaritans and why they had, uh, even they had a little bit of, uh, well, why they tried to avoid them. And the reality is this. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And the 10 northern tribes were, uh, there were 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. The 10 northern tribes had been overrun by Assyria, uh, the Assyrians years and years earlier. And, um, and the strategy of the Assyrians were when they would overtake a place, they would depopulate it. They'd leave some of the original inhabitants, but they would depopulate it. And then they would insert new people in from other countries that they had overrun. And it's kind of like to, to weaken the country. And so what, what, uh, wh- what happened was when the pagan religions came in from the other countries, some of these Samaritan people began embracing these other religions. They had false idol worshiping. And, and, uh, and so the, the Jewish people trying to be strict and trying to follow the, the teachings of, of all the Old Testament were in, in a capacity trying to avoid, they didn't want to be contaminated by uh, the Samaritans and by their religion. So that's where some of this animosity Began developing, and the animosity was so strong that uh, you know, Jews would often be attacked if they traveled through Samaria. At one point, the 100 years before Christ, some of the Jewish people went up and destroyed pieces of the uh, destroyed the temple, Mount the temple that they had at Mount Gerizim. You had the the Jews who went then they went to uh, the temple uh, in Jerusalem and to desecrate it, boiled human bones on it. So there's there's this going back and forth uh, that uh, that was present with between the two cultures, and he was at the well. This is uh, the one the one on your left is a picture from the early 1900s, uh, where the area of the well uh, is. But on the, the right is uh, the Greek there's a Greek Orthodox Orthodox church that's built over the top of it right now. And so the well is still present, and actually it is an undisputed location. The Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews all agree this is Jacob's well. This is the well he dug. This is the well that's directly referred to in Scripture. Originally it was about 100 foot deep. Now they say it's about 70, 75. But the reality is is it was dug by the Jewish patriarch Jacob, and that's where this story is unfolding at noon at Jacob's well. Verse 10 Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now the Samaritans revered uh, Jacob, uh, because they, they, had, they felt they had that lineage to him through Joseph, his son. And now we're going to start seeing Jesus. He's going to begin to educate her. He's going to, uh, first of all, exercise his authority and emphasize the distinctiveness of who he is, what his mission on earth is, and who he is, why he's here. Verse 16, he said to her, "'Go call your husband and come back here.' The woman answered and said, "'I have no husband.' Jesus said to her, "'You have correctly said, I have no husband.' you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband this you have truly said and so this is the part i was referring to that it's a possible reason why the woman was ostracized because they did have the teachings of moses you have the ten commandments so here she'd had five husbands and she was living with a man so it's a possible reason why she was being shunned within her culture and she was marginalized verse 19 the woman said to him sir I see that you're a prophet, so now we know she's growing in awareness of who he is. He's more than what she initially assumed. He's not the thirsty Jewish man. He's somebody who's carrying authority. And um, but why? Uh, and and she refers to him, and says, "Sir, I see you. You're a prophet." But why would she refer to him as a prophet? I mean, a possibility is that in Deuteronomy eighteen. Chapter eighteen, verse fifteen. Moses said this, and this was the text that, being a Samaritan, she would have honored. The Mo- Moses said, uh, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him." So, possibly with the authority that he was speaking, the things he was being to talk about, she realized the conversation was going deeper, and uh, and she made this reference to him. And as they move into this deeper conversation. Uh, he's going to be referencing her place of worship, and her place of worship, uh, on, on on your left are those the temple steps, looking up the temple steps at the at the mountain at the at Mount Gerizim, the temple that they had built, some of the the ruins of it, and then once you're on top, looking down into Sychar and uh, and into the valley there of Shechem, uh, that you can see the temple steps below as you're looking down into it. So she went on to say in verse 20, "Our fathers worshipped on this mountain." And you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now he's going to start really developing her understanding of worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And he can make that reference to her because, remember, they only had the first five books of the Bible. Verse 22, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And we know that, there's prophet, that there is prophecy in Scripture in the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah coming. So, so the Jews' uh, salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming he who is called Christ when he comes he will declare to us all things. And Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he. And in in the in our English language he was added but what he would have said to her that he would have uh, in Greek it says I who speak to you am. So it's one of the seven I am statements that are in John. So that that's Christ's response to her. Now we see what he's He's, he's doing. I mean, Jesus, upon examination, established his authority in his distinctiveness and his calling to mankind. But I want to present this to you. Now, remember that Jesus had previously, before, he, before they left uh, Judea and were traveling up to Samaria, he met with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was part of the religious order. And so knowing that, answer, help, to, help me to answer these questions. Did Jesus reveal himself as a Messiah to the established religious order of his time first. And who did he tell himself to? I am. He's to this woman at the well. Did he find the most righteous person on earth, seek them out, and tell them, I've come, here I am? Did he search and find a person who understood how to worship him, who even was worshiping him, or worshiping him in the correct manner? No. And all these questions, no. He didn't do that. He had a divine appointment. He had to pass through Samaria, and he had a divine appointment to meet with this woman at the well and reveal himself being the Messiah to her. So this should give each one of us hope in that regard, because think about this. He found somebody who wasn't seeking him, somebody who wasn't living for him, somebody who didn't understand who he was and why he was coming. He found a marginalized person in his society who was ostracized and outcast and was shunned. And he revealed to that person who he is as the Messiah. I would hope, in some capacity, that all of us here would have an identification. In some capacity, we all should be able to identify with the woman at the well. So, in the focus of this teaching with this next piece, I really want to emphasize at this point because God's providential precision and our personal response within it. Verse 27. Uh, Let's pick back up there, and we'll see what his disciples are returning to. They've been in town getting the food. They're coming back. And at this point, his disciples came back. We'll just stop there in verse 27. So at this point is very specific. It's like at this moment, at this time. In the Greek piece, it's a critical juncture in the Greek saying at this moment, It's not used unless you're saying something like like precision. It's not too early, and it's not too late. It's exactly where it's intended to be. And this, remember, so providence is the execution of God's will. So at this point, his disciples are coming back. So we see the overlapping stories. We see his conversation with the woman about to close out, and then we see a new conversation with the disciples occurring. So everything is perfectly aligned here at this point of providence. The route that they chose, the time of the day, when the, when the woman was there and leaving, and when his disciples are returning. Uh, and also, too, I want to reemphasize this, that there were no physical miracles that occurred at Sychar, that people, uh, but there were spiritual ones through providence that occurred. So verse 27, And at this point his disciples came back, and they were marveling that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you speaking with her? And a possibility is, in, in that time, uh, well, a reality in that time was that uh, women were treated different and um, and Orthodox Jews would actually uh, not inc- allow women to be included in active worship. And, uh, and there, were actually, there was a, a temple porch. At the, uh, in the temple, there was a, a place where women were able to be or they might have, like in a synagogue, women might be at the back. But as far as active worship went, they were non-participants. The, even you might have a strict... Uh, Orthodox Jew, uh, especially like a rabbi, now Jesus is, uh, being, was referred to as a rabbi, someone who's a rabbi, wouldn't necessarily even talk to a woman in public. Now, does that mean that happened all the time? I mean, no, it doesn't mean it happened all the time. You had Greek and Roman culture that was, that was influencing that culture, but there were aspects of the Jewish culture, this is what happened. So Jesus being a, uh, a rabbi, his, his disciples were returning, and they were seeing him talking to a Samaritan who was a woman, and uh, so thus they were questioning things. Um, now, Christ had uh, just re- revealed that he is the Messiah to him as they were returning. And so verse 28, we pick back up. So the woman left her jar. And I like that piece. I now, mean, what does that communicate to you? She understands he's the Messiah. And there's an immediacy there. Just like Abraham, the father of our faith, Abraham, when, when the Lord uh, would, would communicate for him to do something, he had... Uh, part of the characteristic of his responses where he was immediate in doing those things, and then likewise we think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to, to have an encounter with Jesus, wanted to see him, and he climbed up that sycamore tree to see to see the Christ. And Jesus looked up and saw him and said, "Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house." And Zacchaeus went home and received Jesus gladly, and uh, and and. and Invited him into his home, but what did the religious establishment do? They grumbled about it. What's Jesus, who claims to be this rabbi, interacting with this sinner for? But what was the result? But what was the result of him doing that? Zacchaeus uh, gave away half his possessions and promised to to pay four times what uh, anybody that he'd wronged. Well, he had a response like the woman at the well. It was immediate, and, and that's the reality of when we have an interaction with the I am. When we have a reaction with I, when we interact with I am, he interacts with us, As our, our response is demanded of us. Either it's going to be obedience or disobedience, but we all have to be in a place that uh, that's, we will make a personal choice based upon whatever that providential moment is. And for Zacchaeus, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to save, uh, come to seek and to save the lost. And he kept that mission going. He kept that mission and he had that mission whenever he was talking with the woman at the well to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 28, and uh, she uh, talked about, and, and the woman left and went into the city and said to the men, "Come, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. Is this not the Christ?" They went out of the city and were coming to him. So the custom of that time, you would see it would be like a half a mile difference. So Sychar, from Sychar to Jacob's Well is roughly half a mile. So so she had traveled back, left the jar, traveled back to Sychar. Most likely, according to custom, would have met the men at the city gate uh, and began um, conversing with them. But think about this. What's different about her? So here's this woman who has to travel at midday. She's shunned. She's alone. She's ostracized. But now there's something different about her because she's going back to the people that treat her this way. And she's carrying some kind of different authority with her. And she's able to effectively communicate her interaction with Christ. Um, that reminds me of Isaiah 12, verses 2 through 3. It says, uh, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not dread, for Yah Yahweh himself is my strength and song and he has become my salvation therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation and this woman drew from the from the well but of the well of living water she came to know who Christ is and she was different it wasn't uh, and her actions demonstrated her change of heart and demonstrated her faith her, her her actions didn't save her her actions were a result of what she had chosen to do She had an interaction with I am, and as a result, a response was demanded of her, and she chose to follow him and to step into that divine appointment. Being called to salvation, she responded and said yes. Let's pick back up in verse 31. The first word, meanwhile. I love that word, too, because meanwhile indicates to us about the overlapping stories that are occurring, the overlapping providential preci- provision, the precision of that that is at place right now that is at play. verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi eat, but he said to them, "I have food to eat that you do not know about." And you know they had been gone the whole time, but uh, so that whether he had something to eat or not, they didn't know, but what we're going to see is he's going to begin to challenge their thinking, to develop them, to expand, Uh, so they can grow into the roles that He's called them to. Verse 33, So the disciples were saying to one another, Has anyone brought Him anything to eat? Jesus said to to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish His work. Well, if if Christ is taking things from the physical to the spiritual, and He said He was hungry, so they went to food, so they went to town to go get it, breaking these taboos, and He's fine with all that, and then and then they come back, and he's not, uh, he's not hungry any longer, but he hasn't had anything to eat. And he's referencing that he has satisfaction. His sustenance is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Well, let's take a second and see what, was, what is the will of God for, for Christ during his earthly ministry. And we see it in John 6, 38 through 40. It says, For I have come down from heaven, this is Jesus saying this of himself, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So this this text demonstrates the sovereignty of God. Regarding providential precision, Christ is saying about himself, that he will lose nothing, he will lose no one that the Father has given him. And then it also displays regarding uh, personal choice, that those who believe in the Son will have eternal life and be raised up. Both are at play. So that was his, that was, you know, that was his mission, Jesus' his earthly mission, is to do that. Now, what, did he finish his work? As he was hanging on the, the cross, John recorded in John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished, in order to finish the, uh, the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge in it of the sour wine and uh, upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So he did. He came to earth during his, and did his ministry here, did the Father's will, and finished his work. And that's what he was challenging the thinking of the disciples. He wanted them to see things, to move from the physical to the spiritual. And so he's developing them and growing them. And that's what he does with each of us now. When they were restoring a temple worship in, uh, after the Babylonian exile, and they were rebuilding the walls in, in Jeru- uh, Jerusalem, they were rebuilding the temple so they could worship at it, God just didn't instantaneously make it happen. He developed his people to do that. He developed his people to go back and restore. He used Ezra, Nehemiah, and the exiles to, to, to rebuild that piece of the nation so that they as a people could then come before God and worship him. So I ask this, so what, does this com- what is all this culminating into? <clears throat> Let's look at verse 35 where Jesus said, Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields; that they are white for harvest. Harvest. So, so the, from the the so Jesus would have been standing at the well, looking back at Sychar, in mean, that half a mile distance, he'd have been looking back across there. But what if there? But, there being fields, the, the, it's projected it probably would have been like a, like a barley harvest because this would have been December, and then in, when this is occurring, and then in April was when the actual harvest of the barley would have occurred, which you see in the bottom corner. Well, that wasn't what Jesus was making reference to because it, was a, it would have most likely been a green field at that time. So what do you think he was making reference to when he said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they're white for harvest? He's talking about the salvation of souls for the kingdom. You know, when Jesus uh, began his earthly ministry, he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Peter and Andrew, fishermen, and he told them, "Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." So Jesus is developing his disciples out to fulfill his ministry, and here he is. Sure enough, he's saying, um, "He's saying, uh, lift up your eyes and look for the, the the fields for the white for harvest." But what did this, the tra- the, tra- uh, the traditional dress of the Samaritans is white. So that's what would have been coming to them from Sychar to the well. There would have been people dressed in white coming. So he says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. He's talking about the Samaritans. So so Jesus was taking his disciples and developing them, challenging their thinking, growing them. And what did he do? He, he He took the conversation from talking about grain to talking about people, from talking about something physical to something spiritual from talking about the well water that you get with a clay pot to the living water that never runs dry. He was talking about physical food and then switched it over to what sustains us spiritually. In verse 39, let's pick back up. What we're going to see in verse 39 is we're going to look at the influence of, of the Samaritan woman The influence that she had, the woman who had been ostracized, pushed to the side, deceived into a sinful lifestyle, but now cleansed. What's her influence and how was she used for kingdom work? Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. Verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. So my question to you is, is he your Savior? I mean, from from a standpoint of do you know who Christ is? Have you taken that step of following him in faith? Do you know him in that regards of being your Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? Like scripture talks about, we must deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Have you made that step like the Samaritan woman did? Or have you accepted Christ and he's just not in the place of being Savior in your life? Like you're running into the same problem the 10 tribes, the 10 northern tribes of of Israel did when they had the the pagan culture and came in and they began worshiping false gods. They began worshiping false things in their lives that bumped God out of being the priority. Is he your Savior? So, working through, after working through all this text, where are you? I and mean, we see God's providence, how he needed to leave, how Christ, we, let's say, it, we see God's providence at work that he, the timing wasn't right for him to stay in Judea anymore. He was going to go to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria, he arrived at the well at midday. We see his providential precision in the timing of the woman coming and going, of the disciples coming and going. We see the precision timing of at this point. Because at this point, God executes His will, and these providential moments are orchestrated. Um, Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So all these pieces were coming together to will and to work for God's good pleasure. But don't escape the fact that what precedes verse 13, it says in verse 12, that we have to work out our faith with fear and trembling. It's a personal response. The two go together, providential precision and personal response. I ask you, who do you identify with in this story? There's a woman at the well. She was in need of salvation. She was living within the margins of her society, ostracized, being pushed to the side. She was thirsty for something that was different than what she understood could fill her, and she was longing for something more. Obviously, l- look at the the relationships that she had been through. She was, she wasn't being filled with the living water, and she was searching for something. Or do you identify with the Samaritans at Sychar, who were worshiping something they didn't understand? They were in, incomplete in what they were doing. They had a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth, and they were worshiping at a wrong location in a a God that they didn't have a complete picture of. But when they did encounter the I Am, when they did encounter I Am, then they did follow. Do you identify there? Or do you identify with the religious Jews? The religious Jews had the full scripture of the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah because salvation comes from the Jews. And Christ uh, was a Jew or is a Jew. And so, Uh, on his earthly ministry. And so, but do you identify there in the fact of you've had the opportunity to come to know Christ and you've rejected him? Or what about this one, uh, the religious Jews, where they valued the act of worship more than the attitude of worship? Or even another dismal piece of it is, do you identify with religious Jews who had such a strong contempt for the outside culture that they, wouldn't, that they would bypass and skip and go around it and wanted nothing to do with it. We, we shouldn't identify with the religious Jews as followers of Christ because we live in the midst of a culture that is broken. We live in the midst of a culture that's like the Samaritan woman who is searching and searching. All she can get is the well water, but she wants the living water. But our role in this culture is not to be an isolated little bubble our, uh, we're supposed to be uh, uh, we're supposed to be innocent like doves, so we don't embrace the culture. But the reality is, is we're supposed to confront the culture as we're able, as as when we have those divine appointments that roll out for us, that that's the execution of God's will. We have a responsibility to make a personal choice based upon the truth of Scripture that aligns us to uh, to confront the culture and to love the culture, not to have a not to have a contempt for it. Or do you align with the disciples who were seeking obedience, but they were confused? But the good thing is, at least they were asking questions amongst themselves, and at least they were in a place to be developed. Because here here you had these disciples that some of them at one time had been fishermen, but were now being taught how to be fishers of men. How to, uh, for those people who do want to come to know Christ, those people who do want to believe, then they were in the position Uh, They were growing in that position to lead people accordingly from the physical to the spiritual. Or do you identify with the Samaritans and Jews? They were worshiping God by location, but not in spirit and truth. The Samaritans had their Mount Gerizim because they got rejected. They got rejected at the temple. They went to try to help rebuild the temple with false motive. And so they were rebuffed. They just built their own temple to worship at. And then you had the Jews who were worshiping at the temple in the correct area, but yet they were more concerned with the act of worship and not the attitude of the heart. Or how about maybe we could all identify with everybody in the story because everybody in this story was caught up in the physical and not the spiritual. That's how they saw everything. But they saw it that way until they interacted with Christ. And once they interacted with Christ, he demanded a response. Now you may not say yes, you might say no. Like look at uh, there, there were religious leaders in Christ during Christ's earthly ministry who accepted Christ and followed Christ, but there were those that made personal choices not to and were part of the predestined plan of Christ's crucifixion, and they made personal choices to participate in that. All people in the story were careful to obey tradition as opposed to worshiping in spirit and truth, because they saw things from a physical perspective. The disciples were, Why is he talking to the Samaritan woman? Well, so he challenged her thinking so they would see things differently. He grew the woman so that she would understand that where she worshipped and what she knew wasn't wasn't a full completion. And that's why he revealed himself to her as: I am he, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. You know, God executes his will within those moments. And, where, and who is it that you see? Who is it that you identify with, with where you are right now in your walk? What providential moments can you, you feel like you, maybe you're even in the midst of right now? I mean, we don't know, like, like John Flavel in his quote, we can look back on things and see how God's providence. But my challenge to you is, what is your personal response now? within the moments and the things that you're being challenged with. And I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you in four areas. I mean, First, don't discount yourself in kingdom work. The woman at the, at the well didn't. The woman at the well, look at her response and how she was immediately used to help bring salvation to people. She did not discount herself. She did not, uh, society did not get to define her. Christ did. Christ defined the the preciousness of who she was, not the people around her, and changed her completely, and even changed how people responded to her as a result. Second, I want to encourage you that when you find yourself in unknown territory, that be inquisitive and be curious, what is it that God has me here for? Not why God do you have me here, but it's like God, how can I serve you? What's the providential precision of this time? How can I read your scripture and make a personal response in this moment that I'm obedient to you? Because it wasn't; it would have been much simpler to take the smoother routes along the uh, you know along along the Mediterranean Sea, the coastal highway, or to follow the Jordan River. Uh, those would been much smoother routes to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. But they went over the rough terrain, and stopped there in Sychar, and so but. Sidecar, there was a divine appointment that was to happen. We don't know our divine appointments, but we do know when we have an opportunity for personal response. And we know that when we study Scripture, when we read Scripture, and we can understand how we can take that Scripture and apply it to our lives, because that's how we know uh, what our responses should be. And I want to encourage you, thirdly, that... um, When I said, uh, I'm, well, I am talking. I talked about when you find yourself in unknown, tor- unknown territory, but I also want to encourage you that when you're on mission, that we're not always going to understand what's going to unfold on that mission. It kind of ties in a little bit with the other one about being unknown. But when you're in unknown territory, you can be in a place of questioning things. But when you're in a place of being on mission between here and there, just don't miss opportunities for personal, uh, for personal response. And fourth, if Christ is not your Savior, is today your divine appointment? And is He calling you? Because the good news is for everybody. The good news is for for all of us. We all fall, we all sin, we all fall short of God's glory. And we must be in a place of confessing that sin and accepting Christ as Savior and appointing Him to that position in our lives. And I'm available to talk with anybody after the the teaching. But what I do want to do is end with, uh, with this poem. It was written by Grant Colfax Tuller. He was a Methodist minister in the 18 and 1900s. He also wrote hymns. It's called The Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful and the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the immensity of your love for us. Thank you for this this story being recorded of the woman in the well. And thank you uh, for your providential precision in our lives. And may we be obedient and find ourselves in places of of searching for your truth, of being inquisitive when we're challenged, and and accepting the the development that you give us, and and moving into and embracing what your truth is as we have the opportunity for personal response Mm -hmm. in your name.